I'm Dr. Stephen Lynn, and welcome to the Functional Dentist Podcast, where we explore how your mouth and its related diseases present us with a deeper connection to our inner health. I'll take you through the lost mouth-body link guided with root cause functional medicine and how teeth provide our deepest anthropological human markers and the fundamental principles to understand all chronic and skeletal-based disease. Through ancestral nutrition, modern scientific evidence, and the raw anatomy of craniofacial growth, breathing, and the endocrine bodily balance, we'll understand your body like you never have before. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share with your friends and family and leave a review on iTunes. You can find more information on functional dentistry at drstephenlin.com and on Facebook and Instagram at drstephenlin. Can you use breathing techniques and exercises to reduce anxiety and depression? Physiological benefits of better breathing is being revealed more and more in the scientific literature. Breathing is a portal to changing the nervous system in ways that increases our physiological resilience. Psychological stress disrupts immune regulation and makes us more prone to catch colds and flus and makes recovery slower. Breathing techniques promote balanced function of the nervous system and also help us to build a robust immune system. Specific breathing exercises that improve our ability to breathe nasally help us to resist infection, protect our lungs, and improve the ability of our lungs to recover from illness. Today, my guest is Rosalba Courtney, an osteopath with over 40 years clinical experience and in all types of osteopathic treatments. She's a PhD from RMIT University on the subject of dysfunctional breathing and has published widely in the scientific literature on breathing assessment and on breathing therapy for the treatment of children, asthma, sleep apnea, and difficult to treat conditions related to breathing dysfunction. In this discussion, we explore some of the easy to see symptoms of poor breathing that often show up in a functional dental exam and the connection between how we can change our breathing habits to improve our health. Today, sleep apnea is one of the most common breathing disorders on the planet. It affects the heart, the brain, and increases our risk of many chronic diseases. Yet many people don't know how to change their breathing habits in order to remove the disease. Dr. Courtney and I discuss specific therapies for breathing and the world of breathing therapy that is opening up to show us how important our respiratory system is and why we must change and increase our conscious awareness of the way we breathe. How is breathing affecting your health? Today, people suffer from the ramifications of breathing issues, yet we struggle to find answers and how we can help ourselves to breathe better and feel better. Today, to talk about the science of breathing is Dr. Rosalba Courtney. Rosalba, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thank you, Stephen. Rosalba, <laughs> breathing is such a fascinating and very topical yeah. um, you know, yes. issue at the moment and you know but you've been doing this for quite a long time and i think there's a lot of confusion out there in the in the community as to you know what proper breathing is which we'll dive into but i thought for those that uh you know weren't familiar with your work uh, you know, tell us a little bit about you know how you started as a practitioner you know to start to look into and then going down the road to doing a phd in breathing well um i mean i trained as an I trained in the 1970s, if you can believe it. Somebody asked me the other day, you know, how long have you been in practice? And I said, oh, graduated in 1978. <laughs> so, you know, um, so I trained as a naturopath, osteopath. I did acupuncture, 
Chinese herbal medicine. And I was always, in those days, you sort of could, <laughs> you know. So it took me like a kind of 10 years to get all of those under my belt. And then working with patients, um, I was just always interested in finding, you know, the best way to help them. And I had a bunch of patients who had strange breathing symptoms or who had asthma. So I started looking at ways to help their breathing, looking at breathing exercises and so on. And um, that kind of led me to the Biteco method, which was, you know, came to Australia in the early 1990s. And so I got involved with Biteco and I became chairperson of the association and wrote, we went to Russia, met Biteco, and I wrote the first training courses and so on. And the more deeply I got into that, especially as I was training people, and I met some great people who were students in the class, but they taught me as much as I taught them. And... um, you know, I started to realize that actually there's more to it. You know, this breathing thing, people get better using different sorts of breathing techniques. And people have been using breathing to heal from the beginning of time. <laughs> Do you know, you know, you've got records in the Indus Valley, you know, going back thousands of years of people using breathing to heal. And um, in every language of the world, you know, the word for breath is the same as the word for spirit you know essence life essence and so on so there's that sort of that side of it and um you know there have just been lots of fabulous breathing therapy so the more deeply i got into it the more i realized i don't know anything and i can't really put myself out there as a teacher of this stuff so i went back and did a phd so i did a phd i started in 2002 finished in 2011 <laughs> and um ended up with you know my current work, which is just, I call it integrative breathing therapy. And it's really about, you know, I sort of developed models, you know, for work because I wanted to work clinically in a kind of a professional way with the breath, because it seemed to me that there was the art of breathing, then there was the science of breathing. And sometimes they didn't quite match up because in the research literature, there was a lot about breathing. And then the art of breathing, you know, sometimes, um, so much contradiction in there. So I came up with a kind of a protocol for assessing breathing and then individualizing breathing therapy so that people could get the therapy that was most likely to help to help them. And um, that's it. Okay, go on. Yeah, the, the, it's, I mean, it, that's a great kind of overview and especially to the depth of, you know, when you really look at the, through the literature, um, you know, as you mentioned about, you know, breathing, it, it is so widespread, isn't it? And, you know, sometimes disparate as, and there's, you know, there's lots of different, you know, places that this information is sitting and it really takes someone to kind of, you know, build bridges, uh, you know, to, to start to understand, well, you know, how do we understand what's happening in the body? And then, um, you know, how do we change this in a patient? So, you know, it's real credit to you, you know, going to do all this work and for so long. Um, can you describe a little bit about that problem point. You, I imagine, when you started your PhD, you had all this literature sitting in front of you. Um, you know, what were you noticing that was, uh, you know, being published, and then what was the gap that you tried to 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 build out in terms of, you know, how we build this model for people to breathe better. Well, I guess my main, re- my, I mean, my thesis was called dysfunctional breathing, its parameters, measurement, and clinical relevance. So that's what I set out to investigate um so dysfunctional breathing uh so before the 1990s 
you know, or before, say, the mid-'80s. You know, people had been writing about breathing dysfunction as this disruptor of health. You know, going back to the Civil War and da Costa, you know who I'm talking about? You know, the the surgeon um, who was with the Civil War soldiers, noticing that when they fell apart, their breathing fell apart. And when their breathing fell apart, you know, they, their heart rhythms were all over the place. They couldn't function. And pretty much after every war, you know, people were noticing that there was this thing. And they called it soldier's heart, effort syndrome, um, and hyperventilation syndrome. And so hyperventilation syndrome was a thing until, you know, the 90s, early 90s. And the idea was that people with dysregulated breathing had hyperventilation. That was the problem. And then in the and then a bunch of studies started noticing that, wait a minute, people who with hyperventilation syndrome, they don't necessarily have low carbon dioxide. What's going on? And so, you know, there was one research study where they had people um hyperventilate people who were diagnosed as having hyperventilation syndrome then they had people who were just normal then they had both groups hyperventilating and then hyperventilating an isocapnic gas mixture meaning that they kept their co2 the same and they found that symptom production didn't necessarily correlate especially in the hyperventilation syndrome group the symptoms didn't necessarily correlate with the drop of co2 So then they went, wait a minute, symptom formation is more complex than this. Dysfunctional breathing is more complex than this. What is it? So in the 1990s, pretty much all the scientists, the respiratory psychophysiologists who were researching, you know, hyperventilation syndrome and dysfunctional breathing, well, actually they were just calling it hyperventilation syndrome. They went, oh, we've got to rethink this. So pretty much for a decade, hardly anyone would touch carbon dioxide, the hyperventilation syndrome stopped being a diagnosis. And I was teaching the Bateco method, which is entirely based on this idea that hyperventilation is the scourge of modern man and that, you know, we have to do everything to reduce our breathing, raise our CO2, and um, then it'll heal everything. And so this is the big conflict, you know, for me. It's actually one the big thing that made me go and do the PhD, you know, the CO2 question. And um, so what, what I found, you know, the model that I developed of dysfunctional breathing is that dysfunctional breathing has three key dimensions. One is biochemical, which is hyperventilation and CO2. One is neurophysiological, you know, to do with the brain and rhythms and oscillations and perception and the autonomic nervous system may or may not be related to CO2, okay? And then the third dimension is the biomechanical, which is the structural, which is your work, Steve, do you know, which is all about the sufficiency of the airway, you know, the ability of breathing muscles to function in a coordinated and appropriate way to give appropriate feedback back to the, to the brain. And um, so they're the three key dimensions, biochemical, biomechanical, and psychophysiological. And so the, 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 um, so there you go, I'll stop because I think that's your question. Yeah, I, th- I think that really sums up well the kind of the background as to, you know, the problem point that you had to kind of bring together and, and why it took so long as well, because it, it is a very complex area. Um, and it, it, 
also a very complex problem for people as well. So, you know, I, I thought, you know, because obviously in the dental practice, you know, we we see these symptoms and they are difficult to describe. So your work really starts to help, you know, build in, um, you know, diagnosis ca- capabilities where we can start to see, well, okay, you know, why is this breathing pattern coming in? You know, we look things very structurally, but there are obviously other things going on too. Yeah. I thought we, you know, we, we might... Uh, dive a little bit into, you know, what people are experiencing uh, and what you've noticed in your patients uh, um, in terms of, you know, how, what, what are people presenting? You, you, you mentioned asthma and asthma is a very common um, condition now, you know, in, in uh, you know, young children and especially children with developing dentitions. Uh, we, you know, yeah. we see asthma very often in this age group. What would yeah. you say is a typical presentation, um, you know, in this age group, uh, of breathing dysfunction, and and where would you tie that into your model of of what is happening? Are we talking about children now? Children? Yeah. So I thought we'd start with yeah. children. Yeah. Okay. So the children I see all need to see dentists usually. <laughs> um, so children um, that I see will come because they have asthma, right? Or they'll come because of chronic mouth breathing. Um, they're often brought to me because they um, have behavioural and sleep issues. And um, also some of the children, just parents notice they have dysfunctional breathing. So the child just is unhappy with their breathing. You know, they're sighing, they're, you know, they're just not breathing in this way that looks good. And the parents go, well, what's wrong with my child's breathing? And then my diagnosis with children it's a bit different to adults but with children um children can get dysfunctional breathing and stress-related breathing disorders just as well not just as much as adults but they do get them you know and it breathing is very much affected by stress and um stress as you know you know is is just where um something has overwhelmed the body's adaptive capacity do you know it's not just having bad thoughts you know and being neurotic it's it it can be like a physical thing so just imagine a child um, is born and there's something's threatening its airway they can't breathe so there's something in the neonatal period or perhaps they're developing some obstruction to breathing the brain interprets that as stress it's a stress or something is a threat to life it's overwhelming the little tiny baby's capacity so that can really change fundamental um it's called long-term facilitation of breathing control something changes in the brain and so the child then is always feeling like they're not quite getting enough breath because all their chemoreceptors and their whole breathing system it's like turned on for wanting too much air and um so you know, they can start mouth breathing at that point or develop an abnormal breathing pattern. And sometimes, you know, they've got an obstruction and so they might have a tongue tie or something or the palate is narrow and the airway is small. And you put all of those things together and you get a child with quite a disturbed breathing pattern. But the big thing is often they're mouth breathing at that point, but they're also breathing weirdly. You know, they'll have high thoracic vertical breathing pattern. And the issue is it's often got three dimensions. You know, it's got this dimension of the mouth breathing, the breathing pattern, often the the the, the kind of um, wiring, you know, the neural wiring for breathing is just a bit off. And um, the child often perceive they've got some problem with the perception of their breath. So they're either completely disconnected from breathing where they don't 
They don't know how they're breathing. They've kind of checked out. So they've got poor breathing perception and poor body perception. So they're not very in tune or embodied, you know, with the breath or other body sensations. And then you've got the hyper-perceiving child, you know, where they're just always like, oh, I'm choking, I'm choking, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And they'll have, um, you know, this sort of over-perception of their breathing. The most yeah, dangerous really- are the under-perceivers because they're the ones that can have the life-threatening asthma. They're a sort of a subcategory of asthmatic children who really don't perceive with their body or their breath. Mm. It, it's it's interesting, yeah, because you know we see that quite, especially the disconnection. Um, you know, the, the the complete being completely unaware of how of a breathing pattern, and you know, you know, with the very you know cursory questions in the dental chair, you can see that, um, yeah, that there's these 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 two categories of patients: the people that are very aware that they they think they have a problem, but they can't ascertain as to what that is um and then there's the people there that just uh, have absolutely no idea that there's there would even be an issue at all so it's it's interesting um you know i i think you probably see this you know a lot better than other people but the 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 mechanical um factors of breathing so so for a parent looking at a child you say it's that we're thinking about you know parents being being more conscious about how their child is breathing how would yeah. you tell them to assess their physical posture and and you, the the thoracic movements of breathing to start to think about whether you know whether their children are breathing um efficiently which we'll talk about more later but just some of the yeah. signs in the body yeah. yeah well you know mouth breathing of course is the big one um but then in breathing pattern what you look for is excessive sighing sighing yawning excessive you know, that kind of thing in breathing. So if you see, you know, a couple of those a minute, that's quite dysregulated rhythm or pattern of breathing. The So you look for that. Um, then you also look for, do you see that child, you know, do you see shoulder movement? Do you see upper vertical movement? Does your child seem to get too breathless, breathless too easily with sport? Um do they have trouble blowing their nose? <laughs> you know, if they can't blow, often the breathing pattern's a little off. And the other thing you might do is lay them down on their back and see if they can breathe into their belly. And, and you know, if they can't breathe into their belly, and <clears throat> they've lost that connection. If they can't breathe into their belly sitting up. And some kids will respond quite well to just a little training. Some kids, it takes weeks, you know, to try and reset that connection. Mm. And, and so... The the thoracic um, signs uh, you, you see that there's, there's you, you made a, a shoulder movement is so yeah. kids move their shoulders and, and upper chest movement is that is that yeah you see a vertical dominance in the breath mm. so you see the breath which is normal it's normal to breathe like that sometimes but to breathe like that at rest is what's abnormal mm-hmm. so instead of an expansive. Um, yeah, just a, it's the relaxed, what's called the relaxed configuration of breathing, which is how you should breathe at rest. Mm. It should be dominant, um, widening, widen in and out. Widen as you breathe in, narrow as you breathe out. Vertical pattern is lengthen as you breathe in. Mm. And so and a lot of what I do with kids is like just training them to reverse those patterns. So we talk about slinky breathing, you know, breathing like a slinky and changing that pattern. And yeah. getting that breath. 
Yeah. So a lower up and down movement more in, in getting this idea of, of expansion. Yeah, breathing wide, you know. And we work with sound. We do ma, ah, ha, breathing, and just try and get the sense of widening, you know, with the breath. And yeah. You breathe out and so on. It, it's so interesting because, you know, you see these muscle patterns and so forth, but the, then the application is, is very, you know, and it, it's very detailed, isn't it? Obviously your work and, um, you know, the, the problems that, um, you know, in the dental chair we see is that this affects the, the growth and development of the jaw. Um, yeah. And this is something that you've interfaced, you know, quite well with, you know, during your career. And yeah. it's something that people are really starting to, um, you know, to kind of wake up to. How would you say, there's a question here from Corinda. Um, so for kids that have small, a small crowded mouth, um, would you say that breathing therapy is beneficial if crowded teeth, a small palate cannot be remedied at present time? Because we find this, this problem in the dental practice where we have a very small mouth and sometimes, you know, if it's a young child, um, you know, you can see there's a breathing issue or there is snoring. Uh, you know, what would you say in terms when there's a structural problem, how we interface this, you know, guiding a child to better breathing when there's an yeah. architectural issue? Yeah, that's right. You know how difficult it is with children sometimes. You know, they come and see you and you just can't do things because they're wriggling all over the place or that you just that you can't quite get an appliance that will be appropriate for their age. And it's a challenge, you know, but you know how important it is to do things early. And so it's just always a matter of finding what can you do at this stage. You know, and with a baby, it just might be things like you know, if there are a whole lot of age-appropriate things that you need to do, and the the you, with a very small baby, um, you know, you might just do things like cuddle them close. You know, work with your own breathing, relax. Maybe use you know a humming. You know, like what mothers have done since the beginning of time. You know, just hum and sing to them, and just try and entrain their breathing with yours. Do you know? Soothe them with your breath and then close their mouth, you know, keep closing their mouth. And then as they start to get older, you might do things like teaching them about swallowing, getting them playing games, you know, swallowing through a straw, sucking through their teeth so their tongue starts to move properly. Um, you know, some manual therapy, releasing the cranial base, working on these muscles underneath the tongue. Um, so, you know, in a nutshell, like, Yes, the answer is yes, <laughs> but it's a, it's not like, oh, do this breathing exercise with your child. It's a really, breath is so vast. You know, breathing is interacting with every system in the body. And the professional approach to being a breathing therapist is not just having a breathing technique that you do, boom, and you give it to this person, that person, that person, that person. Do you know, it's about You've got a person in front of you. There are things that have made their breathing become disturbed, you know, and those things are going to keep disturbing the breathing until you address them. That might be structural or it might be the nervous system or it might be the gut. It might be reflux. You know, it might be vitamin D deficiency. It's like as a professional, you look at the causes, you work on those and you work in an interdisciplinary manner. And, um, uh, so and and then you you work with the breath where you can you know where you can and then you support that by you know looking at the other surrounding things uh, yeah, uh, now you've re really highlighted well you know the problem is, is it's a difficult 
you know, behavior to change in people. Um, and so, and I think parents can sometimes feel a little bit hopeless in that sense that, you know, uh, you know, if they've kind of been awoken to the, to this whole area and they see these issues in their child, they, they struggle with the, you know, the, the steps as to, to fix it. But, you know, you highlight well, actually, that I like that technique of breathing with a child because a child will intuitively, you know, take on a pattern from a parent and it probably leads us on to talking to adulthood uh, breathing dysfunction. Um, but yeah, I've, I think that would be because, you know, small things, you know, affect a child and, and, you know, kids take on, they're like a sponge, aren't they? So I think small things like that for parents would really, you know, start to at least, and also to help them feel better about, you know, and I like that technique yeah, of breathing with the child. That's, 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 and those kind of things that um, we're doing day to day um, is definitely something we you know, we try to interface in a practice, but really what you do at home is ultimately what will change, change the behavior. So I thought we'd go on a little bit to, um, to adults, um, you know, w- what we see, because this is, as you mentioned, you know, this is an area that has been quite, um, you know, it, it's been quite misunderstood uh, for decades now and that you've been piecing together the story. What are we seeing in, you know, common um, symptoms of breathing dysfunction in adults? And obviously they're widespread, but, you know, for a, let's take a, um, you know, a female in their, you know, early thirties to, um, to mid thirties, who is, you know, perhaps not sleeping that well, you know, maybe a little bit, you know, anxious, um, you know, or, you know, seeing their physician maybe for depression. What do you see in terms of uh, breathing physiology that is, you know, connecting to these issues in the body? Symptoms or physiology? Symptoms. <laughs> Let's talk symptoms first, yes, yeah, so that we can kind of, re- and then we'll talk physiology um, okay. after, yeah. Yeah. Um, there are questionnaires, you know, that I give. Um for the professionals out there who might want to know, there's a questionnaire called the Nijmegen questionnaire, and that's been around for a really long time. It's been uh, 30 years. It's been used originally for um, dysfunctional breathing, uh, for hyperventilation syndrome, but now it's used for dysfunctional breathing, this new thing we've got, um, broader than hyperventilation. The Nijmegen uh, questionnaire, and the Nijmegen questionnaire, it's got uh, four dimensions. One is breathing, and so the breathing symptoms are faster they're noticing faster, deeper breathing, noticing that their breathing feels tight. They can't expand their lungs as much as they want. They have this feeling of, you know, just difficulty, insufficiency of the breath. Um, the Nijmegen questionnaire only has four breathing symptoms. The other symptoms are things like tingling, you know, <laughs> numbness. If you've got tingling and numbness, you've got bad, bad breathing. You've got hyperventilation. That's just probably the worst form of dysfunctional breathing where you're getting tingling, you know, perioral numbness, tingling. Um, and then maybe dizziness is another symptom. Abdominal bloating sometimes can be a symptom, although, of course, that can be connected to gut things as well. So there and palpitations. So they're the symptoms of the Nijmegen questionnaire. They don't diagnose it. But all together, when you've got a score above 20 on this questionnaire, then it goes, oh, dysfunctional breathing. So. In my research, I developed and validated a different questionnaire, which is called the Self-Evaluation of Breathing Questionnaire, or the SEBQ. And these are all available on the internet. And both of them are in many languages, you know, even 
my questionnaire, which is much newer, has been translated into Russian, Japanese, and some other languages. And the SEBQ, the um, it's just when you've got a lot of breathing symptoms, you know, when you've got a lot of things like, oh, I'm breathing through my mouth, my breathing is irregular, I'm sighing, I'm yawning, big symptom that's a giveaway for me is when people say, I can't get a deep or satisfying breath. I can't get a deep or satisfying breath. That's a big one. And the SEBQ has things like, you know, my breathing is irregular, I'm sighing and yawning, and so on. And that's a 17-item a questionnaire. Um, and uh, best to go find it <laughs> on the internet. And, and symptoms that are very, very common. Um, so in terms of, I'm just trying to, because, um, you know, we see this so often in the dental practice now, and, um, you know, these questionnaires are, are very useful, um, and as, especially when we start to connect them to physiology. So, look, the, I feel that, um, well, the discussion on breathing now has shifted to hyperventilation, right, with sleep apnea and so forth, but... What you're describing is that so there's a lot of people with hyperventilation that are undiagnosed. So, yes, can you help people to understand what's happening in the body with hyperventilation? Because this is sure, yeah, this because I think people are you know, obviously a little bit more aware of sleep apnea and so forth, which we'll talk a little bit about after. Yeah. But this hyperventilation, what's happening in a person's body when they're breathing too much? Okay, hyperventilation. So there's hyper, which means too much, and hypo, which is too little. So it's all relative, isn't it? Like a lot of people with high, first of all, hyper and hypoventilation are are biochemical descriptors. They don't mean breathing too fast. They don't mean breathing too shallow. You know, they mean hyper means breathing in excess of metabolic requirements, so there's a depletion of CO2. Hypoventilation is not breathing enough, so you're not blowing off the CO2. And it's more about CO2 than oxygen, because oxygen is, body's very good at maintaining its oxygen levels. You know, it's got heaps of mechanisms because it's such a survival thing. But CO2, the body's um, pretty good at getting rid of it. So that's why people, um, it's relatively common for people to have hyperventilation. One in 10, they reckon, you know, has hyper. And so the thing that makes you hyperventilate, there's a bunch of things, but, you know, stress, anxiety, having had a bit of airway obstruction or airway inflammation where the brain, <coughs> the brain goes, oh, I've got a problem here. I've got to breathe more. And so survival mechanism you start to breathe a bit more and um some people kind of breathe more and then breathe less breathe more and then breathe less so they get a dysfunctional breathing where the co2 might be normal on average but their breathing is kind of erratic and all over the place okay so that's your erratic breathers they're your breathing pattern disorder people they're not necessarily hyperventilators okay so that's that category and then use your hypoventilators and you know what some people with severe depression or some people who have just kind of gone over you know they've gone into that sort of freeze response in their nervous system from trauma or whatever they can be hypoventilators and their co2 can be high 
and also people with uh, obstruction. You know, the, the children with the worst, largest adenoids and tonsils, they can have high CO2. Mm. The, the people with sleep apnea who are, you know, it's called hypo uh, obesity, hypoventilation syndrome of, of uh, sleep apnea. It's your classic Pickwickian syndrome, you know, your fat old guy falling asleep all the time with a big thick neck and so on. That group has often got high CO2. They're hypoventilators. And you don't know till you measure. So if someone says, oh, everyone who's a mouth breather is hyperventilating, no. Everyone who has sleep apnea is hyperventilating, no. <laughs> but, you know, you hear this in the breathing therapy world and it makes us look foolish. We've got to stop saying that because it can be both or neither, do you know. Well, exactly, because you're describing such a diagnostic spectrum there that, um, you know, that you know, present in so many different ways. How would you look? How does someone um, look? So we've started to talk about the, you know, the, the overweight male who is the more typical person that is being diagnosed of, of a, a uh, breathing issue today. How would you say that they get to this, um, this diagnosis of sleep apnea? How does the body move to this dysfunction because it does it start with hyperventilation or and how does the the, the brainstem move on to the, this road of not being able to manage breathing during sleep and so forth and obviously there's many different inputs but yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a road there i think there are many roads do you know i i i don't think it's one road i think it can be many roads but i think okay look it may have started in utero do you know with the <laughs> mother's health and um the microbiome of the mother and then the interuterine environment. And, you know, you see babies born with a narrow palate, do you know, don't you, Steve? They're mm. born with a narrow palate and, you know, you know, the tongue is down. It's not up. It's not developing the palate. Which comes first? You don't know, but it can start in the interuterine environment. And so it can be this whole sort of structural road, can be a structural road mm. um, like that. You know, and then there might be a metabolic road. So it could have to do with the mitochondria and, you know, the fact that people are developing insulin resistance, you know, <laughs> they're developing insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome. And, you know, it, it, it cannot maybe not start off as a breathing airway issue. It can really start off with a metabolic issue, you know, gut microbiome, high levels of inflammation, um, you know, high carbohydrate, high sugar diet. And then, you know, they get overweight and then then the breathing issue comes next, do you know. So then there'd be everything in between. Then there can be the stress pathway, you know, where some people end up with instability of breathing control, especially at night. And that instability of breathing control sort of tri triggers the metabolic problem. You know, they start to hyperventilate at night and maybe they've got panic disorder and anxiety in the day. And then, you know, you know, it starts to affect the sleep. They don't go into deep sleep. They're constantly rousing. And then the autonomic nervous system goes off. And then you've got, you know, someone who becomes inflamed. And, um, and then out of that, you start to, you know, not sleeping well causes a dysregulation of the glycemic control system. And then you start to put on, you know what I mean? Like it can be many pathways. No, ab absolutely, and um, obviously, all you know, the development has a has a huge um, plays a huge role in it. And you know, 
you I, I talk to adult patients, you know, in this, um, in this situation almost daily now. And it really is, you know, the, the conversations are going this way where we're, where we're, we're pinning back, you know, to really try and give them the picture that there's so many different contributors to, you know, their current state of health. And in order to, to, you know, fix this, we need to put all these different things into place and everything won't happen at once. Um, you know, there's, look, Reserva, one um, thing that many people are being faced now are CPAP machines. And, uh, you know, obviously they've received a diagnosis of sleep apnea. What would you say um, in terms of the application of CPAP machines um, is in terms of being a breathing instructor, what would your um, your advice to, to someone that has been um, a, given uh, the recommendation of a CPAP machine or a family member? Um, <clears throat> you know, I I know a lot of people end up not using them. Um, I think sometimes they're really indicated. Um, someone who's got a really high AHI, apnea hypopnea index, and their oxygen is dropping really low. I think sometimes they just need to be on that CPAP machine um, for a while, but they should be working on other aspects of their health, their metabolic health, their exercise, their daytime breathing habits. And then particularly overweight people, as they start to lose weight, you know, they might be able to wean off it. Um, I think that there are a bunch of people where the CPAP is not the most appropriate thing, where the main issue with them is actually a structural issue or an instability of breathing control and a poor breathing pattern. And so someone with sleep apnea, you know, usually they just get given two things, mandibular advancement or CPAP. And, you know, sometimes um, they don't solve the problem. So there's this other side, you know, the metabolic side and the breathing side. And um, when people take care of that as well, they expect much better. They should expect much better results. But some people do really well with mandibular advancement too. But, you know, and, and some people really just want an easy fix. Uh, and, you know, they, they don't really want to put the work in or they can't. They don't have the confidence, you know, or they just can't structure and organize their lives sufficiently, you know, to do breathing exercises and exercise and, and um, you know, do the other I, side. I think that's a, that's a great point because I um, when I'm speaking to patients about this, I'm always trying to gauge what the, where their internal motivation is coming from, and and you know, are they because there are people looking for a quick fix. You know, you know, you always try to instill them that you know, breathing is a journey. Um, yeah. But there are some people that you're right that they, they they're just not in the space in their life to be able to kind of yeah. put the work in to really change yeah. you know this fundamental physiology in their body and it, it and they need something like you know like a machine or or a splint so you know yeah. I, I think that's a great point yeah. there's this and then you know at, and they say look you know maybe in a year or so i'll i'll kind of yeah. come to this. and there's benefits exactly. too exactly yeah. and some people are just feeling so bad Mm. You know, it's really hard to organize themselves um, because they're just barely getting through the day. And so then, but I don't know, I try and encourage people to do simple things. Just, okay, what can you do? <laughs> you know, I've got someone I'm working with at the moment. He said to me, look, you can only teach me three things. I can't take in any more. If you give me any more than three, 
simple things. I just won't do it. Just give me simple things. And then every week comes back and says, okay, I haven't done my exercise. I say, okay, no worries. Let's sit down, do them together. If you, you keep paying me, you can sit with me every week. I'll take you through the exercises. And as you start feeling better, perhaps you'll get on board <laughs> and do it yourself. I've stopped being judgmental because, you know, it's tough for people. And sometimes it's confidence. You know, this, there's this term they call health self-efficacy. And it's almost like when you start to get on top of it, you get a charge, you know, you feel good. Wow, look at this. You know, I'm making myself feel better. But if you try things and they fail and you try and you can't keep it together, you really lose confidence. And um, sometimes the work of a therapist is to support people, hold their hand as they build that confidence. Yeah, and I think you're right too. Yeah, that there is that that little watershed moment sometimes where you make a breakthrough, and then they real they feel a lot better. Um, and just personally, you know, I've found that doing this this journey myself, which I've probably been on for about five years now, I've found that the 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 quality of sleep, um, the quality of um, you know the way my body feels, you know, during exercise and the control I have. You know, even in the clinic, you know, trying to control my breathing in the clinic, it really does have a day-to-day benefit that I just can't quantify now. You know, there's nothing that I would say is more valuable than me thinking about my breathing. And, you know, so I try and, you know, you try and instill these things, obviously, but, you know, people are in, you know, it's a difficult problem as well. So, and it's always a journey. It is a journey. So how do you work with your breathing on a day-to-day basis? What are you doing during the day with your breath? Day to day. So at the moment, I'm really, I mean, so really working on tongue posture and mm-hmm. especially because, I mean, I spend a lot of my time in the dental chair. So tongue and especially the posterior seal. Yeah. So that's something that's. Back of your tongue. Bit, yep. mm-hmm. Yeah. The, but yeah. So the back of it. Exactly. Yeah. So that's something that I've found that has, that has helped a lot because mm-hmm. connect, <clears throat> connecting the posture into how it, it's my reminder because I find mm. when I'm focusing on, um, you know, if, if we're doing procedure or something, that your mind falls off. And then I find my, mm. my shoulders slump, my head comes forward, my, my yeah. tongue goes down. And, and then I realize then that's when the mouth breathing can start. So once that, yeah. that, so I start to focus and then so all those things fall out. So I'm starting, so I've found that trying to center on, on that posterior tongue seal helps to keep all that in check and then everything yeah. stays in yeah. tune. And it's difficult, yeah. you know, especially during a procedure, it's hard. But yeah. and each nerve, of those some of those dental like, procedures are nerve-wracking, <laughs> I would think. I, when I'm in the dentist chair, I often think, oh, my God, you're so brave. <laughs> I mean, that's right. It's, it's life, you know, like life is nerve. So, and, but breathing is just such a great way to, to keep that mm. controlled. And, you know, any... Um, you know, any high stress situation is, is absolutely, um, you know, going to be, um, you know, centered around or, or more kind of calm if, if, if we can control our breathing. So, look, there's a, this problem points, you know, in adults who are really motivated. I, I feel we're kind of at the area that, you know, there's adults that are, there's enough education out, out there for people to change their breathing. It's difficult if they have architectural problems. Um, in kids, you know, there's a lot of parents out there that are asking me, you know, what what can we do to stop mouth breathing? And so Grant asked, you know, how can I stop my daughter um, from mouth breathing? Uh, are there exercises to improve lung function in kids? You know, so stepping into, obviously, you know, there's only so many things you can answer, Rosalba. How would you, you know, where particularly mouth breathing is obviously a problem in the child, 
how would you approach that and you know what kind of tips would you give um so in terms of stopping the habit you need to understand if the child can do it or not some kids can't you know they they need to go and see an ENT and get their tonsils and adenoids checked you might harangue them to close their mouth and they just can't and when they close their mouth they'll just get antsy they'll jump about their behavior will get worse so you need to really have your child checked you know but a, a, a lot of kids can um be encouraged to close their lips so it just starts by saying okay honey close your mouth you might even want to have a quiet time where you sit with your child and you say okay we're going to have nose breathing quiet time and you sit and you make it a comforting nurturing relaxed rewarding time and you sit with your child and you have them nose breathe and then you can um play games you know and you play games and say okay this in this game we're not allowed to open our mouth and you can just work with increasingly um increased levels of activity and keep it nasal breathing so you just have to be creative as a parent work things out you know how you would do that ball games dancing games simon says do you know i do a bunch of stuff like that so um quite with the little kids sometimes we only get as far as doing nose breathing quiet time and active nasal breathing time um so, you know, that, that's a good start for you. That's as far as I'm going to go. <laughs> yeah, obviously. It's a, but, I mean, you know, basically what you're saying there is you need to, you know, create practice and create mindful, um, you know, mindfulness in, in the household in terms of, of how, you know, the child begins to realize the importance um, yeah, and, and, and the habits in, in the, the adult as well, you know, because if a child sees their, their, their mum and dad mouth breathing, you know, they, they think it's normal. And, oh, and totally, yeah. Often there's no awareness in a child, you know. So you mm. just you start by building the awareness and, and making it a, a, a thing that you reward, you know. Oh, that's so good. You look so great breathing through your nose. How would you manage that? I've got, I've got two children and one is 28 and the other is 36. And I've got pictures of my, you know, 28-year-old as a baby in nappies, do you know, and we're doing nose-breathing exercises with him in nappies. And um, he grew up to have a great face, you know. He had a palate expander for six months or something, and then the dentist was just amazed. He said, wow, you know, oh, he's just kept on expanding. He's just doing so great. And I went, yep, nasal breathing, <laughs> you know. And um, so we started really little, but I remember my children, we always talked about, you know, nasal breathing and it's just sort of a thing we talked about in the household. And it sort of got embarrassing really because we'd go for walks, you know, up to the lighthouse here at Palm Beach and I'd go with my children and they'd see someone mouth breathing and they'd say, Mommy, did you see that mouth breathe up very loudly so that everyone could hear? And I go, it's okay. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, they just learnt and they'd get a cold and they'd cry, I can't breathe through my nose. And I'd say, don't worry about it, just breathe through your mouth every now and again. <laughs> it won't kill you. The um, the physical, um, you know, kind of barriers to, you know, to nasal breathing can sometimes be, and especially in children with, with uh, oral restrictions. Um, you mentioned working on some the muscles at the floor of the mouth um, it, and, and also cr- cranial release. Do you find these things help to, because some kids obviously aren't in the space for a release and obviously exercises are very important with a myofunctional therapist. Um, what are some of the things you would have 
parents just be mindful of in terms of, you know, how this affects a child's breathing? Yeah, there's children who are mouth breathers um, and they're, you know, they're straining for air so their head is forward, you know, to open the airway and so on. They end up, they get very tight around the base of the neck and you touch them, you know, and they go, ow, 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 <laughs> you know. So massage your children, you know, massage the base of their neck, get them used to a bit of massage. Do a bit of massage here, you know, drain their you know, drain the lymphatics, um, you know, work on their faces yourself. Um, mm. I, I think, you know, simple things like that, I'll often train parents. Like I, I say, here we go. We're going to do a massage technique for the lymphatics and get the tension from the base of the neck. You know, that kind of thing can be really great. You know, just pressing on the rib cage, lifting the rib cage, putting your hands on their belly, getting them to breathe into their belly. I'm assuming that we're talking because the questions have been sort of seemed like they're coming from, um, parents, so I'm kind of directing my answers to them. In terms of health professionals, you know, doing cranial release, I think um, I'm all about self-help, um, and it's good to do it with the guidance of a practitioner, but, you know, really the work you do yourself um, is often has the biggest impact because you can do more of it, you know. So that kind of thing is good. So cranial release, I think, um, you know, I think I'm going to say something a bit controversial here. You know, I'm a, I'm a cranial osteopath as well, as well as a structural osteopath, and I do still do hands-on work all the time. And and I reckon cranial work and manual therapy is a waste of time <laughs> if you don't close your mouth, breathe through your nose, and learn how to breathe properly. Because whatever your therapist is doing, you know, if you're not taking care of that, it, 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 you're going to end up in the same place. So well, that's yeah. what I'm seeing, you know, because we we make a dental diagnosis of this, you know, and we try and integrate these kind of um, things into it, into the the interface. But you know, the the thing I I constantly see patients, you know, report is that they go to their their body work worker and it works for you know a couple of weeks to months at best, and you know, you can see the the oral posture that they're um, that they're stuck in and what you're describing is they're not changing the function is that well you have to change how you use the system for it to stay like that it's um yeah. so you know i think that makes complete sense yeah that's the big big message and i just sort of keep saying that you know i i do a bit of teaching at southern cross uni and i also mentor research stu- you know students doing their research masters and i'm always plugging away you know function 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 think about because osteopathy is about the interaction between structure and function and i was saying function 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 and they're going but that's not osteopathy you know like we want to do our manual therapy and i go yeah but you want to get results right you want your patients to get better so don't just make them rely on your manual therapy get them to do things get them involved then you really see the results and that's fantastic for everybody because as a therapist you just you live for your patients getting better you know that's what keeps you going to work and um so you want results it doesn't no no practitioner wants to endlessly be treating a patient who doesn't ever get better you know unless that's your business model but honestly no, I, I think it's a it's a soul destroyer yeah absolutely and and it really is describing a um a a health modality that is much more multifaceted than just one you know going to one practitioner and having something fixed you know something like this really isn't going to to go away from just one problem but there are many different contributors 
Rosetta, how would you recommend for people, there are many people listening here in the US, uh, how, how would you recommend them finding a breathing therapist or, or some tips on that? Um, do you know, there are, there are people around, you know, some orofacial myofunctional therapists do breathing work. Um, I, I've been, you know, in the last few years starting to train people, um, in the integrated breathing therapy approach. And, um, so, I mean, you know, if you want to get a bit more information, you can come to my website. I'm doing a lot of online stuff these days, including group work. And, you know, eventually what I hope to do is to, to you know, have a nice list of people who I can refer to at the moment. Do you know, um, breathing, the quality of breathing therapists varies enormously. It's kind of, it's a really new developing area. But what you want, I mean, one a really good place to start is an airway-focused, you know, dentist. They'll often have good connections. And looking for breathing um, therapists, I think uh, it's a little bit difficult, but you just try the internet. Sorry, that wasn't a very good answer, was it, Steve? It's because it's a new direction. Yeah. Well, it's a difficult area. You're right. And, you know, and I, I, I get a lot of inquiries for recommendations and it is very difficult. So, I mean, look, you know, having that perspective is important. Um, you know, we'll, we'll give them your website at the end so that they can look up to see um, if they can join your online trainings and also uh, find a practitioner you've trained. I've been doing an online training for practitioners, which is a... Um, uh, integrative breathing therapy, nasal, upper airway focus. And I'm doing one in November uh, for in US time. And I'm doing that with Dr. Barry Raphael. Do you know him? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Barry's yeah. great. He's, he's sponsoring a US time-based course, which is going to be for me over two mornings and in the US over two evenings, where I do a lot of the nasal rehabilitation Um upper airway, like integrative upper airway training, which is looking at how the nose and the upper airway, they integrate with the whole breathing system. So, you know, that's a training. And I did one earlier in the year. And um, there are a number of people in the US who did that. And so, but I didn't, um, I you know, if people email, I can sort of might be able to direct them. There's also, I've got a website of people who have done my, tra- sorry, a Facebook group of people who have done my training. And I can always flick requests through to that and people can respond who are in your area. Yeah, and, um, you know, there's, as you mentioned too, that this is, this, there is practice out there that has been happening in human, human culture for a long time as well. Um, it is a little bit varied. Um, you know, I, I was interested, it was a few years back, I, I was reading, it's in the Vedic text, isn't it, where they talk about the breathing cycles and the, the, um, the, the counts of the breath, which I found really interesting, the four-second count, um, you know, just before we finish up, what, what was your, in, in reading some of those uh, very ancient therapies, what you thought about, and also to the, the philosophy of breath too, it's just fascinating what they thought about the essence of life and, you know, something that we are, you know, someone like yourself has really connected into science and to, um, you know, what's physiologically happening in our bodies. Now, this is something that is something very old and very fundamental that is, we're, we're starting to understand at a very, um, much broader level now. 
Yeah, absolutely. So the counting of the breath, you've got specific different counts. In yoga and pranayama, yeah, they use a lot of counts. And the, the um, it, it's interesting, when I was in, um, I went to a, a, a conference in Bangalore just of yogis, pranayama people. It was a research conference in 2002, I think. And there were a bunch of people there who were, you know, gurus. And they were all convinced that their count was the perfect count, you know, four, four, six, two, four, nine, three, eight, four, seven, eight, you know, whatever. And so it, it's interesting. Like I, I kind of came to the conclusion, oh, look, it's just the process of counting, you know, that focuses the mind. That's really good. But there are specific counts of breathing that help to organize neural rhythms optimally. They all do. All types of breathing techniques will tend to take you out of default mode in the brain and it'll tend to improve the functional connectivity of important parts of the brain that regulate the stress response. You know, like the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex, it'll improve those connections plus other areas. So anyway, breathing for a 10-second cycle you know, getting your breaths into a 10-second cycle has this optimal effect on the brain and on the autonomic nervous system and on the baroreflex, blood pressure blood pressure system in the body and on heart rate variability. So slowing the breath right down, you know, to about five to six breaths per minute really organizes all these different rhythms and oscillations in the body. So, but don't get addicted to that because I think that the real strength of breathing therapy is actually working with a variety of rhythms. And so it turns out the yogis might have been right. That's where I'm coming to, you know, working with a bunch of different patterns and rhythms. Um, but then knowing that there is this sort of real sweet spot, which is breathing at about, you know, 10 second cycle of breath. Yeah. I found myself that, um, you know, focusing on, because, I've always found that the meditative practice are quite difficult switching off the, the monkey brain. Um, but that, that count of breathing does help to kind of remove you, you, you know, from, from those kind of everyday thoughts. Um, yeah. and you know, the, the physiology is all there, isn't it? But it, it, it Reason. does all kind of, for most people, they have to slow down, don't they? And yeah, there most are have to slow down, but sometimes speeding up is good too. Do you know, I, one thing that, that one of the big things for me, big you know revelatory moment was that at first when i was working with the bateco method it was all like reduce your breathing reduce your breathing breathe less breathe less breathe less reduce your breathing regular even reduce breathing and it's like that's not life do you know life functionality means variability responsiveness and you want different things going on and and the same with the breath so um a lot of people with bad anxiety and a lot of the dysfunctional breathers, they know about controlling the breath and they do something which is bad for them without knowing it. They over-control the breath. So this all gets into the subtlety of breathing therapy. You know, some people need to control more. Some people need to control less. Some people are very chaotic and irregular. They need more regularity. And some people are just dysfunctionally regular. And um, so you you need to, you know, work with that i think that's great obviously you know everyone's different and you know you, you see this in, in in people's personalities as well you know f- for people that are very controlling and very kind of want to want to um you know have everything in their life including their health um under their control you know sometimes you 
you know, I'm always trying to just give them a little bit of guidance and maybe you need to relax in this sense and maybe that will yeah. kind of get you where you need to be. Yeah. Which, which yeah. kind of bring, comes into breathing, doesn't it? Yeah, it sure does. And it's about connecting the mind too. You know, like I always say to people, breathing is a brain exercise and it's a mind-body practice, you know. So using breath to relax is not just about slowing the breath down to a particular rate or reducing the breath so much so that you raise CO2. It's really about working with that breath-mind-body connection. Can I just mention too, Steve, that one of the course online courses that I've got coming up is an online breath-mind-body course, you know, which is over five weeks. Excellent. Yeah. Actually, why don't you, um, where can people find you with your website and your, your courses so that they can look further? Um, well, you know, my website's just uh, um, com, and um, the, this patient and practitioner courses on, on there. Do you know? So, there. And you'll be doing some online, <laughs> online training coming up. Yeah, I've got some online practitioner training coming up in November, and but the patient programs, I've got a Healthy Breathing, Healthy Child online program, which is, it's limited, very limited numbers. I can only work with very small groups of children. It's only like four kids, four or five kids, and, and people have to have a consult with me first because I do an evaluation first. So that's a bit limited, but the breath, mind, body is don't have to do an evaluation. It's just working with breathing, mindfulness, different rhythms and patterns of breathing, learning to use the breath in daily life for stress mm. reduction. And that's kind of, you don't have to have a consult first. No, it's great. And there's all different tools that work for different people. You know, Rosalba, I just want to thank you so much for, you know, devoting so much energy and your life to such a fundamental human practice. And to something that I completely agree with, you know, it, this is something that, you know, really controls a very fundamental aspect of what makes us us, our, our mind. And, you know, I, I think people can really have, uh, you know, huge benefits from, you know, taking in some of your your wisdom as to how to breathe better. Rosava, thank you so much for thank joining you. me today. You know, I hope to, to, to meet up with you soon and we'll have to do some, you know, update on all of this. There's been so much discussion on breathing. It's great. Yeah, it's getting popular. <laughs> People don't right. think I'm crazy anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm obsessed with breathing. I go, oh, if you only knew. <laughs> it's everything. All right, Rosalba. Well, thank you so much, and we'll, we'll, we'll have a great day. We'll see you soon. Okie dokie. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for spending the time to listen to the Functional Dentist Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please go to iTunes and rate and leave a review for this podcast. For more information on functional dentistry, you can visit www.drstephenlin.com or follow me on social media at Dr. Stephen Lin on Facebook and Instagram where we discuss the health issues that are affecting you. That's all for today and I'll see you next week.